Hey everybody, this is Sean. Uh, real quick, just wanted to say, this episode was supposed to come out a little while ago, ran into some technical issues with the audio, as in, and I don't want to throw the website under the bus, but it was totally their fault. My entire audio was lost. So that's a problem when you're interviewing someone, like our great guest in today's episode. So I had to recreate it and did the best we could. And so the results are a little sloppy, but forgive us, and I think you'll still enjoy this chat. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Hello, this is Sean Harwell. You are listening to the Never Heard of It podcast. I am joined today, as always, super reluctantly by... By the by reluctant hero, Craig Moorhead. Uh, Never Heard of It is the uh, podcast where we talk about the movies that have fallen through our cracks uh, and other things that may relate to your uh, cracking needs. That's right. And not only do we have an extra crack with us today, but it somehow feels appropriate given the fact that we're talking about a movie that deals with uh, a man's inner demons literally coming out of his anus. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, this one actually kind of feels like a perfect last episode, in a way. Like, this was where we were always headed. Yeah, what else was I going to say, Sean? Well, I think you were going to say, Craig, that you can find us online, as always, at NeverHeardPodcast.com, and listen to all of our episodes. And we've had some great chats recently with a bunch of guests, and you can go there to see all of those things. You can subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find us at all our social places. We're on YouTube, Instagram, etc. So come say hello. That's, man, that's pretty much it. Yeah. You can find us, go on the internet, and there we are. We're always there. And what are you going to say next, Craig? Here's what I'm going to say next. Today... I'll never heard of it. We have a very special guest in the form of a young man named Brian James O'Connell. Brian, welcome to the show. Ah, uh, thanks for having me, fellas. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. And those of you who aren't familiar with Brian O'Connell, you should be, because if you listen to our episode with Bob Hardison, where we talked about the James Franco movie, Child of God, Brian directed Angry White Man, the movie starring Bob and written by Bob. He also directed Killer View, before that, and most recently, the indie horror comedy Bloodsucking Bastards, which we're going to talk about a lot. So, writer, director, actor, improv guy, uh, hot dog maker, I think he is a seamster, not a seamstress, and a musician? Yeah. Oh, only of the penis. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. And if you haven't seen Bloodsucking Bastards, I mean, that's going to lead us to our movie today, which is is another horror comedy of sorts. Yeah. And Bloodsucking Bastards is out there on Showtime. I know I watched it online through Amazon and Showtime. And uh, where else can they get it? You can get it just about anywhere. My cousin, uh, my cousin Butch, who works for the State Department, lives in Burma right now, and he just watched it with his whole family. It's on cable. <laughs> it's on cable in Burma. No excuse. No. Yeah. They run it every Easter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, too. Last time I was in Los Angeles pitching shows, I was in Showtime and uh, sitting in the lobby with uh, my agent and... Uh, producer that I was pitching with and they had like four TV screens on and one of them had Bloodsucking Bastards and I was like, wait a second, I think I know this. Shut up! <laughs> so we, we ended up talking about that. <laughs> That's correct. Nobody, nobody bought the pitch, by the way, especially Showtime. So, uh, you know. 
<laughs> well, brilliant, brilliant. That's all perfect. It was a good meeting, though. <laughs> hey, I know this guy's film. Great. Fuck you. Get out. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's great to have you in here, you know, because I think you're another one of our many, many guests who have gone to North Carolina School of the Arts, and we've known you for 20 years, and yet, you know, we, we always kind of ask this question because I do think it's relevant and also interesting, and it, it's not something that I know despite knowing you all these years. Um, I would love to hear you kind of talk about how you got into film and, and kind of what led sure. you to at least look at it as an education possibility and something that you were interested in and going to college for and then beyond that you know the transition that you've made uh to become you know now a director and it's it's a really exciting thing and and i think um you know that this this last movie especially shows a really bright promise um but it's always kind of fun to look where you started so we'd love to hear about that well thank you so much um first <laughs> that sounds so weird because i've known you guys for like over 20 years um, <laughs> well, i think for me like Coming into film school, I always felt like a little bit of an outsider of the outsiders because all of you boys, I always felt like you know guys like you know you know Dave Green and 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 Heath and and yourself and all those guys like knew it. It always seemed like all of you guys knew that you wanted to be filmmakers like since you were four. Like you like, like you saw ET or you saw like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars. You're like that's it. Like I was always a musician. I was always in bands and doing stuff. And then right around the junior year of high school, my parents were like, "Well, you're going to college." And that's just, there's no argument about that. So what do you want to do? And I started looking around. I was like, well, I like to write. I like to do music. I like to read. Yes. I like watching really shitty movies like Rawhead Rex and all that. <laughs> so uh, I was like, I guess, I, I guess. And then that's right around when School of the Arts had just started up doing their film program. And I was like, well, this is close to home. I can stay close to my band. And it also seems to kind of like put together all the stuff that I kind of already like to do in myself. I never thought that I would be a filmmaker. And then I got in, which was even more surprising. And then I sort of slowly but realized I was like, oh yeah, I did I did like book reports in high school with my friends where we just made a video instead of like writing it out. <laughs> like slowly but like, surely I was like, oh yeah. And after a while I was like, oh no, I belong here. Like two of those book reports was a parody of Murder by Death. Wow. Yeah. I was like, oh, maybe I might be more hip to it than I than I think. And then after a while, like meeting guys like uh, Craig, I think I hung out with more than anybody else my freshman year. It was me, Craig, Matt Frischman, and um, and uh, Olivia Honeycutt. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe I, maybe I do fit in here. Maybe I belong. Uh, and then from there, I was like, well, I'm also here. I can't let my parents down. And then I just got really, really into it. And then us having that the movie library that we did, because I grew up, uh, there was a place in High Point, North Carolina, where I'm from, called Video Adventures. Or it was there back at the time. It's been gone for forever. That's a good name. Yeah, RIP Video Stores. Uh, they had a great deal called Five for Five for Five. For five bucks, you could rent for five movies and keep them for five days. And it was and it was close enough I could ride my bike there. And as long as you didn't go into like the red section, which both of all of us know exactly what that section is. <laughs> movies about China and Russia. Yeah, the Russian <laughs> section. Russian to bust this nut. Um, <laughs> Yeah, as, as long as I didn't go into the nudie section, they were okay with renting me fucking whatever I wanted. So I got I got First Blood, Killers Clowns from Outer Space, 
Uh, I mentioned Rawhead Rex before, Maniac Cop. Nice. I think just at that point, like the guy that was running the counter was like 16. He was like, oh, you want to rent this little man? All right. You know about this movie? I was like, I'll take that too. Yeah, and I think that's right around that time I started, once I got into School of the Arts, I was like, oh shit, I have to really start paying attention. So I went back to Video Adventures. And I think that's when I found Evil Dead 2. And I was like, oh, okay. This this speaks to me. Yeah, I don't have to make... I don't have to make Raiders of the Lost Ark to be a filmmaker. I can make this. Yeah. Yeah. And then once we, uh, once we got graduated from film school, it's the kind of thing like you guys all know, like either go to New York or go to LA, or if you're smart, like Dave and the boys, you stay in town. (laughs) Sean Harwell being one of those boys as well. And you make a movie in North Carolina and then apparently you get, uh, you get written up in a time magazine. Right. That's (laughs) that's the formula. Yes. I never, I'll never forget that. I was on a, I was a fucking plane. I was by Time Magazine before going to a plane so I can read because uh, I feel erudite, I guess. Uh, and I remember reading that in that plane and it was like, it was talking about, it was like the end of the year or whatever. It was like uh, the number one movie of 2000, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Number two, George Washington. Wow. And I was like, oh, shit, this just got real. Yeah. Uh, Green and company have raised the bar. Yeah. When George Washington came out, that kind of made it palpable for a lot of us mm-hmm. to see what yeah. could happen at that level and then where that could lead and then it could happen relatively quickly, which is crazy. Yeah. I'm yeah. also kind of wondering because I think, you know, we went to a school where the film school was somewhat segregated from the other majors of music and dance and uh, design and production and then theater. And I think in some ways you stood out to me, at least in, in our group of friends and then just in the film school and the young early days of it in general by being someone who you know, I was always terrified of having to act in anybody's anything. <laughs> it didn't matter if you were pointing a camera at me or not. And uh, just felt extremely uncomfortable with the whole idea of it. And yet you seemed eager to do so. You were happy to be in other people's movies and, and were quite good at it, you know, specifically at, at being the lead and thing. And I remember, you know, was that something that you were into prior to coming into college? Had you done acting in high school? Or where did that kind of come from? And, and how did that kind of feed into your your time there and then you know thinking about it something that you wanted to do i know obviously like you're heavily involved in the improv scene in los angeles and and clearly you like performing so would love to hear a little more about how how that developed uh yeah i actually was into acting for a long time like one of one of the reasons going to film school is like well i also like to act so i guess it's i guess i could do film school uh and to be perfectly honest like I was like, oh, well, if I want to be in movies, I should learn how to make movies. And that uh, that smart, first smart. that first semester of being on campus and watching all of our friends from the drama program all dressed in their blacks, coming back from class on lunch break, and all the girls are crying, all the dudes are like punching walls. <laughs> that just sounds horrible. And I'm like, uh, I'm gonna go see uh, I'm gonna go see the Great Train Robbery. I guess I made the right decision because that looks <laughs> fucked. Uh, yeah, but yes. it, like, yeah, I mean, I I had some of that, you know, I was a front man in bands for a long time, but like, I I actually, I actually nearly failed kindergarten 
And the only reason I uh, the only reason I passed kindergarten at the Catholic school that I was going to is because uh, Mrs. Nance, my kindergarten teacher, was originally a music teacher. And the big end of the year production, which was one of those shitty like elementary school, where it's like they, they they took the Wizard of Oz and the and the like and the cat that ran away with the spoon and mashed them up some way for some reason. Sure, <laughs> just it just so makes sense. Yes, I played the Tin Man and I played the cat, and then I. I remembered I remembered everyone's lines and fed everyone and like as all these other five year olds get like stage fright and like I saved the play and she passed me nice. and I was like oh maybe there might be something into this but yeah after I after I graduated and I stuck around for those couple of years to work in the production office that was part of it as well where I was like all right I'll I'll use the facilities to record my band in thank you New Foley Studio and yeah. I, and um. And being buddies with all those guys, you know, in in your class in '99, uh, I was like, all right, I'll just, you know, like I'll act in all my buddies' films, and then I'll I'll have an acting reel coming right out of college when I go to LA. So yeah, it was not it was not hard. And also, let's be perfectly honest, I'm an okay actor. Like, there's only like nine actors in all of Winston Salem, and two of them were elderly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's. There's only so many times that you can put old Joe in there. So you're like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. I also feel like you got killed a bunch. No, I got, and, no, I got killed a ton. Yeah. I think the old joke was I, I got killed a bunch and Schneider killed himself a bunch. <laughs> it's not worked. Yeah. Not literally, of course. Although on my own, I, I actually had Brian beat up Nate Meyer. Oh, oh God. Just, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. How is oh, Nate yeah. Meyer? Does anybody know where Nate Meyer is? He's a director in his own right. He made a movie called Seagull really? Run. Yeah. Yeah, with Robin Tunney and um, Adam Scott and a few others a couple years back. I'm not sure what he's up to now, but yeah, he's, he's making yeah. it happen, man. I still haven't seen it, mind you, but, you know, maybe someday. Oh, man, if only you had a podcast for movies that people hadn't seen. <laughs> well, we'll have them on sometimes. I also like for a second here that Craig is being like awfully quiet. Like Craig isn't a good actor because he's been oh, in yeah. some stuff. Well, I- <laughs> yeah, he was he was great on that '70s show as the lead. <laughs> That's yeah, for a long time. Uh, this bit, uh, this is a twenty-year-old bit. <laughs> uh, Craig looks like toe for grace. In case anybody's wondering, that is a kind estimation. Yeah. I was more referring um, to Five Lines, the wonderful movie that was made in uh, <laughs> Five Lines. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened after you graduated and left uh, University of North Carolina yeah. School of the Arts. And I refuse to call I it that. I refuse to call yeah, it that. No. that. That's its name. That's its name. Accept it. Move on. No, um, mm-hmm. I remember seeing your first film, Killer View, which I think was officially released in, what does it say here, 2009. Um, I feel like I definitely saw it before then. Though. Uh, our friend, a mutual friend, showed it to me, and man, that that's a, a super dark mm-hmm. and and kind of twisted, but very uniquely filmed uh, a movie about a serial killer. And thank you, I'm very proud just, of it. You know, I, I just remember feeling like like it was something I shouldn't be watching. Like it just has this look about it and this kind of overall dread to it and just ickiness that I think is really super effective. Um, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and like how much you know budget and time you had to make this thing and kind of how Zilch. that movie came together and, and how it was that you found yourself you know, making your first feature and, and how you kind of took the steps to get there. Yeah, actually I was inspired um, 
I came out here in 2000 and kind of dicked around for three years, which I won't get into why. It's just a sad story. But like I, I found I.O. West, which is the Improv Olympic West, is the big improv school that's out here in Los Angeles. Its home is in Chicago. And so I started taking classes there and kind of found my home because um, I had all my school of the arts buddies out here, but I didn't like really know anybody outside of that. And since we were all sort of the same place where it's like, well, I don't, I can't help you get a job. I can't get help you get a job either. <laughs> so like sp- I was trying to spread my wings a little bit and I found that place. And then right around that time, I met a guy that was in a sketch team with who wanted to get in producing movies and he was willing to take out a loan. I was like, okay. And that was right around that time that Foot Fist Way came out and then and Shotgun Stories and Zibiowski's first movie. Miles and, ahead. <laughs> yep. And, um, and I, was so, I was so happy for all of them. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so happy for all of my friends making movies. I want to make a movie. I've got no money. How do I make a movie with no money? And I figured, well, horror will always sell. And horror is kind of what I grew up on. And then so I just randomly stumbled upon an article surfing the Internet that uh, CVS Pharmacy was coming out with these disposable (laughs) video cameras. Like you've bought them for like 35 bucks. And then you like shot like 20 minutes of footage on and like turn them back in and for another 15 bucks they would put on a dvd for you so i was like wait a minute you know i saw that whole that was that idea of like you know el mariachi like he sold his blood to make right. a movie and maxed out credit cards and, you know, and like you know kevin smith selling his <laughs> you know his uh his comic book collection i was like well, there might be something in here that maybe i'll be able to sell it just on the the idea of the story behind the story of the movie for christmas my parents were like what do you want i just like i want five of those mo- those things I want five of those video cameras. I don't want anything else, just that. And then me and Mandel sat down, and mostly Mandel, figured out how to hack them by going on different message boards and all that. And so we just figured out that the interface... What they were using was just the same interface as a Palm 3 Pilot. So we just ripped that up and soldered that together with a USB report. And then the next thing you know, we had five of those, because Mandel's fucking MacGyver. (laughs) So each one of those would shoot, like, he got them to shoot 24p, like about 10 minutes worth of footage. We just used them like magazines. Like, we we bought two bricks, and Musco was our, our AD, I mean, our AC, and he would take it shove it in, download everything, wipe it clean, then turn it back. And out of the five of those, I shot that in 2005, 2004, 2005. Of those five, four of them still work. They're really hardy. Wow, wow. that's incredible. Yeah, and so that's how we sold it, which is the idea of like when we went into, uh, I forget who even bought it now because it's been so long and it's been sitting on the shelf. And uh, the guy who produced it put up the money for it uh, is not my friend anymore. We'll never speak to him again. Oh, one of those stories. Yeah, yeah. You hear all those stories about, uh, and they, and then they changed the ending of my movie without telling me that guy fucking did that. Mm, that uh, stinks. Yeah, I had to find out about it from like because I have a Google alert for my name and all the names of the movies, and so I found a review that I had not seen before. And they're like, "This movie is great. It's intense. It's the most realistic, one of the most realistic portrayals of a serial killer. Really well done indie film, except for this last bullshit scene that seems kind of tacked on." Because because it was, was like, what the shit? <laughs> and so that's the way we sold it to uh, Fabrication Films is who bought it. Uh, we sold it to them. I sort of. In the movie, they're like, hey, we've seen it. We're looking at that. And then taking the film, taking the camera out of my pocket and said, and this is what we shot it on. Oh, nice. And that's when they were like, oh, and their eyes lit up. And they're like, oh, we can sell this. Like, I've always gotten good, really good reviews mm-hmm. of the film. Of my entire thing of filmmaking, my two favorite compliments I've ever gotten on my work was one, 
there was an agent at William Morris when uh, my producer tried to go and take it over to them and like sell the idea to them and have them repackage it and remake it with bigger names. The, one of the big agents over there said, whoever made this movie is socially irresponsible. <laughs> Which I was like, thank you very much. That's like a compliment <laughs> from an agent, you know, just by comparison. And then right? the other one was uh, a, the guy who produced it, a friend of a friend, uh, knew an F, a retired FBI profiler from Quantico. And he sent him a copy of the movie and watched it. And the guy, uh, he said, what, well, what'd you think? He goes, uh, this is probably the most accurate depiction of a serial killer I've ever seen on film. And he said, oh, that's all. He was like, that's awesome. Can I, can I get a quote for that? For like the DVD box? He said, absolutely fucking not. I never want to meet the person who made this. <laughs> he was like, was like, woo. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's important to kind of highlight, you know, this is before, you know, the iPhone. So it's not like you could just walk around with a cell phone and, and kind of recreate this. Look, I'm not even sure you could recreate it today, but describe just for people that don't know, like, what this camera like looks like. I mean, what you're talking about is a very small handheld thing, right? Like, this is kind of like, you know, there were those flip cams that were very big for a period of a couple years. Um, I think my Kodak was made. Those. It was kind of like that yeah, size. It exactly looked like a flip cam. And Mandel and I are convinced that because of what we did with it, and because because we went on and sort of like try to go online and tell like, hey, this is how we did with it on that. Um, not like about little less under a year later, they mm-hmm. came out with a version of the flip cam where you push you push a little button on the side and the USB is already there. It's a part of it. And then it came with more. We're like, I, 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 I bet that's our fucking design. But what are you going to do about it? <clears throat> yeah, they're just stand up. So what would they do? Like, you turn this thing in, they take the stuff off, then they just oh, repackage it? Do they rip it, repackage 100%. it? 100%. Awesome. Yeah, there's a sticker at the top of it that says, do not remove this sticker. And we're like, whatever. Rip. And it's just the same interface as that Palm Pilot 3. So if you just figure out how to do it yourself, you know it. Yeah. It's, it's just for tourists mm-hmm. at the time when, when people didn't yeah. have phones that had cameras on them. Yeah, I mean, it almost, thinking about it, you know, and again, it's it's been a little while since I've seen it, but there's the look of it, like you guys almost managed to make it look grainy. Like I, I think of it as like Super 8 or Super 16 or something like that. Is that a fair description? Well, the way that, my, the, the way that Mandel did it is that, like you said, he hacked it, made it look like 24P. It looks like someone, it's uh, half Mandel and then half Heath Michaels, who was the first AD on it, but also uh-huh. did a lot of... Um, a ton of post effect stuff on it so between the two of those guys and doing their work it looks like someone really really took the time mm-hmm. to light 8 millimeter well I also think it's just refreshing I, mean, I feel like Craig maybe we've talked about this in a mini episode or something like it seems like with the proliferation of digital cameras and digital cinema like it it just feels like it's become easier to get a very good looking film a good-looking image, especially at a low budget. And I don't know. I just find myself, whether it's nostalgia or not, but I'm like, no, I, I miss that. Like, I miss the grit and the imperfection and some of the, you know, seeing the budget, the lack of money shine through. I mean, I, I kind of long for movies to, to feel dirty again <laughs> in, in, in the visuals. Yeah, right? let's, like, let's dirty it up a little bit. Let's say, um... Yeah, not everything has to look like Terrence Malick. Hell yeah. Well, transitioning from that a little bit, let's talk about um, your work with Bob Hardison on sure. Angry White Man and kind of how that came about. 
and sort of how you found yourself directing this movie that he had written and that Brian Mandel, the cinematographer, uh, was also producing and, and I believe sent to you. And, uh, you know, Bob had a, a ton of great things to say about your work, specifically with him as a very new and fresh lead actor among some, you know, formidable cast there. And I'm just going to if you could tell us what it was a little bit like making that movie and just how terrible it was working with Bob. See, see Bob does I listen to the I listen to the podcast with you guys and Bob. And Bob completely undersells himself. Bob is a good actor. Bob was in a little film called uh, that uh, Marshall Southern made back in school called Good Things Cost Money. And Bob has a has a very small role as a sports car salesman. <laughs> yeah. uh, which is very it's very Bob, but he steals that fucking movie, man. I've never I've never shown that yeah. movie or seen it shown to anyone where they didn't laugh and think like that guy's hilarious uh i got that job because mandel shot um brian mandel uh, <clears throat> shot killer view and then he was working out with bob and so it got to the point where i think bob the way that bob told me is that dave green was the one that uh -huh. suggested bob play the lead where he was like bob you're not going to find anyone to direct to to do this role right. the way that you want to do it because it's you just do it and so they got that yeah. he and Mandel both were like, all right, well, I shouldn't write, direct, produce and direct star. Like that's a lot that's, for anybody. That's a, yeah. that's a recipe. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster. Also, also it just doesn't look good on like on the poster. It's like, Oh, written, directed, starred and edited, you know, like <laughs> by this guy. It's a little, little ego driven. Yeah. yeah. So Mandel, Mandel, not only because Mandel and I are you know best friends from school and all, but also he worked on Killer View with me. He was like, we should go get O'Connell. We trust him and we like him, and he's good at it. Like I just did this movie with him. So they called me up. I remember this because it was the day before the Super Bowl, and he was like, "Hey man, do you want to like me and Bob are trying to do this thing? Would you be interested in directing it?" I was like. Fuck yeah! Like, yeah, you're. You right. guys, I mean, we lived together in college. Like, hell yeah, you're my best friend. I, I was like, yeah. I mean, send me the script, obviously. And I read the script that night, and of course, I laughed hilariously because we all have the exact same sense of humor. One of my friends out here who only knew me from comedy scene out here saw that movie, and she was like, "Why did you write it under an assumed name?" That's amazing. <laughs> I said, "What are you talking about?" She's like, "Bob Harson." What is that? I was like, "No, no, no. That's that's a real person. Yeah. He wrote it." She was like, oh my God. I was like, yeah, we have the exact same sense of humor. And so I read it, and of course it was great. And then the next day, I'm watching the Super Bowl at my buddy's house, uh, Sean Callard from Dr. God. And uh, Mandel gives me a call, and he's like, hey, what do you think? I was like, I think it's fucking great. When do you guys want to shoot this? I can't wait. And he was like, oh, we're thinking like April. I was like, oh, this year? <laughs> you, you need to start pre-production right now. It is February. He was like, yeah. I was like, all right, let's do it. That was pretty much how it is. And we hit the ground running. Mandel is... Mandel's just fucking magic. That guy just... I mean, Bob put a ton of work in it too as well, but Matt, Mandel just gets things done. It's kind of magical yeah. how that is. Like, I mean, he got Matt... Do you know how he got Matt Berry? No, why don't you tell, you tell us? You guys talked about it a little bit when Bob was on, but yeah, they were watching the IT crowd, and he was like, you know it would be good? This guy. And then and then Mandel just, just by hook or by crook, found out who his agent was... Uh, sent him the script kind of like heard a little bit back through email of like well we actually are trying to get Matt to do more stuff in America because they thought he was going to be the next Ricky Gervais and why he hasn't been I don't know because yeah, he's, he's incredible he's great uh, yeah, so it was really like yeah, really. and it was sort of 
it was like, well, Matt is also fancies himself a musician first and, and an actor second. So and since there's music in this, we'll see what he thinks. And then Mandel just because he hits the fucking jackpot, he called back to talk to the agent. He was like, actually, Matt's in my office right now. He's reading the script. He's about thirty pages into it. And in the background, all you in the background, all Mandel says all he heard was, "Tell him I think it's hilarious. I'll do it." <laughs> and that, that was it. <laughs> nice impression. I mean, we already had Scoot through That's Bob because Scoot had done Bob's first movie, Marcus, and then Matt got us Steve Agee because they became friends when they did the Sarah Silverman show, and then Agee got us Mary Bird's song, and then I brought in Genevieve because she was on a team that I like, and that, that was our cast, and it was like, hey, we have some fucking names now that's awesome so that was how that's how that's all came together but Mandel got Steve Agee because he realized that when you Facebook request someone on Facebook when you friend request someone on Facebook when they say like hey do you want to add a message there's no word limit to how long that message is he, he copied and pasted like three pages <laughs> a novel into in it and he was like oh fuck Matt's doing it I'm in and AG's great because <laughs> AG's super funny and nice and and AG knows everybody yeah, I saw he's like best friends with Ellen Page isn't he or something they're writing partners wow. yeah well, let's talk about Bloodsucking Bastards a little bit because, you know, uh, again, I just really enjoyed the film and, and you could feel that it's it's very small and I, I, I'm sure you didn't have a ton to work with. But 18 days. Well, what a good cast you have here. You have Fran Kranz from uh, Cabin in the Woods. You got Pedro Pascal from Game of Thrones, Joey Kern, Joel Murray, Emma Fitzpatrick, uh, etc. Um, and all, you know, really good good performances there. And I know, you know, at this point, you've got a, a comedy feature under your belts. You're you're working in improv in Los Angeles. Um, how did you approach the directing of the actors in this movie specifically? When there's a lot of effects work to cover, and I'm sure you know just your basic coverage that you had to get. Did you find that you had time to improvise, or how did you pr- approach directing the actors? in this film specifically uh, 85% of that movie is scripted it just it just it feels improvised because it's kind of loosey goosey I kind of direct in a weird way I kind of direct like a, like an AD like I kind of know what I want already and I kind of see it all in my head from having that uh, from having that editing degree thanks Jeff Stern and Phil Linson <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> what? but also I am used to directing improvisers and stuff and so there was this back and forth where I was like hey let's do like let's do two or three takes let's get what's on the page make sure that we know that we have it so we get in the editing room and all these guys are old pros they've been doing it for a long time Joey Kern and jo- you know Joel Murray and those guys have been in a thousand movies yeah the burbs man for the love of yes. God the burbs yeah. classic come on yeah and I was like, and then you know we'll get that, and then I'll give you I'll give you two or three to play for yourself. And without fail, it's very rare that we did more than four takes. Like we got it, and then we got some more fun of it. Yeah. I knew we were in good shape because two reasons. Number one, Joey Kern is a joke machine. Yeah, that guy was great. He, prob- he probably added. Yeah. He probably like added three or four jokes to the script a day where he was like, hey, what if I did this, man? What if I put my hair up in like one of those binder clips? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> but I know when we were really good, like when we really set, is when um, at one point uh, Joey Joey Kern and Joel Murray came up to me and were like, and Joey was like, hey, hey, Joel has this idea for for the scene where I like where I stab Dave with a pencil. I was like, all right, and Joel was like, um, uh, I just think maybe he could say. Uh, Yippee Kaye Ticonderoga. <laughs> and I was like, that's funny. Right. Uh, but also the fact that, like, 
when you have actors writing jokes for other actors in scenes they're not even in. Yeah, I mean that's that's crazy. That's rare. It was pretty smooth sailing. And we got very lucky that everyone like got along real well. There was a good chemistry and about three or four days in I think Fran and, and, and Joey, Joel came in a little bit later just shooting schedule-wise, but I think Fran and Joey kind of all, like, they were the, and Emma all kind of figured out, because they had been in a ton of movies before, they're like, oh, this might actually be good, this might mm-hmm. be something, let's protect this, let's take care of it. And so that was very lucky for me, because again, 18 days That's crazy. is what we shot that. That is yeah. nothing, Jesus. All right, all right, what else? Holy water, garlic. Oh, I make a really good 40 clove chicken. But we probably don't have time for that right now, guys. Sunlight, that burns them up. Wait, 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 wait. does it? Because, I mean, it's daytime right now and they don't seem to be too bothered by it. Correct, but that's because this facility has a limited number of windows to minimize visual distractions and maximize climate control and security. You're telling me sunlight does kill vampires, but we get so little of it in this fluorescent shithole that they're just... Fine. Good God, that's depressing. Yes, sir, it is. Well, man, I gotta say, I mean, I was really, really impressed by how well the movie builds and the pace of it, and then just the the effects and and the stuff. You know, you get to see the jokes, you get to see the action. You know, there's there's so much blood in this movie. It's fantastic. You know, it's it's fun to see all that stuff, and you feel it. It has impact. You know, it has weight, and it has a purpose. It feels like to not only support the plot but also the comedy of the film, which I think it's lost a lot in movies that are or in this sort of like hybrid genre here and uh you know i i do kind of wonder about you know the the budget here and the constraints of trying to do a movie that has this many pieces and parts to it uh in 18 days again with what you had to work with and can you talk a little bit about the difficulties of of that in trying to you know let's put comedy aside but just trying to make a, a freaking scary movie with murder and death and gore with what you had to work with i mean obviously I'm assuming it it's quite a bit bigger than what you had on Angry White Man and certainly Killer View. Well, it's 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 definitely a bigger budget than I'd had before, but it's not as big as you think it was. Without breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, one of the kind of one of the things I've kind of been good about is that I I'm able to make something of quality that looks like we spent more money on it than we did. Like when when I told them because you know we shot angry white man on 35 millimeter and mandel makes it fucking beautiful and we called in all of our different favors and and all that kind of stuff so when the fortress features guys who owned the property and had teamed up with maybe this year productions well i think i think i got that backwards maybe this year productions had the property and uh-huh. fortress features had the money and then one of the one of the producers colleen hard knew us dr god and so brought us in sort of as a sort of as a work for hire so we first like there was a it was a pre-existing script that uh this guy ryan had already wrote and so yeah we came in they were like how do you it'd been through a couple different directors and it just that's how there's nothing wrong with the script it's just how the movie business works you know yeah and so she was like i think these guys are good because we were kind of one-stop shopping like you know uh Justin Ware is a is a studio approved screenwriter, and he he uh-huh. sold movie scripts to studios on just on pitches alone. And then Sean Cowig Sean Cowig is part of that Emerson Mafia. He had been part of all that, uh, and he had like and he was the technical director at IO, so he knew all the different stuff. And then like obviously, I had directed movies and gone to film school. And Dave and uh, Dave Park and Neil uh, Gargiulo had produced a bunch of television and and all that kind of stuff. So we all kind of had 
all the credits. And so they kind of came in, wanted to meet us, see if we would get along with them. And right. then they were like, hey, well, do you want to, you know, on good faith, read this script and kind of come back to us with what you think your take on it would be? And we came back. They're like, oh, God, that solves a lot of the problems that we just because we were too close to it. We couldn't figure out. It kind of went in a couple more spaces, you know, a couple more stages and figured out, like, do we, you know. Do I yeah. want to dance? Should I lean in for the kiss? That kind of thing. And I think what uh, put them over the edge is that we sh- we were like, well, if we should probably watch Brian- what Brian's directed. If we're gonna, just- we're not just gonna hand him the keys to direct this movie. And so we, and so we gave them Angry White Man, and they came back and they were like, this is brilliant, this is great. And then uh, they were really happy with it. And I was like, thank you, I appreciate it. And when they asked us what we made it for. And I told them uh, their their jaws dropped. They were like, "We thought you made this for a, we thought you made this for a million and a half dollars." I was like, "Fucking not even close." <laughs> we wish we were in our dreams. And so and so the Fortress guys, who are also known for making uh, movies that look good on a budget, that was that was it for them. That was the final stamp of approval. So we went into a process of like sort of. Divide and conquer. Like in the very beginning, me and Sean Cowig would meet up at my apartment. We would write all during the day, and at six o'clock, we would turn it over to. Um, we would send it off to Justin Ware. Justin Ware gets up really early in the morning, and me and uh, me and me and Sean bartend at night. <clears throat> so Justin would write from like six a.m. to noon, send us back to it, and then we would either pick it up where he left off, or go back see what he had changed, and then like change one line back because we're like, "Fuck you, that's funnier." But for the most part, that first draft came together in like 15 days. Wow. Uh, and then over the course of time, Justin did an incredible amount of rewrites that I can't even begin to count. Yeah. And like he was up to including like writing on, state, on set. But I would say our first draft we turned in, I think April, somewhere around April 14th, like no, we, we were supposed to deliver it April 18th. We delivered it April 14th. So we were even early on our draft. And then that was of 2014. We were in January of 2014. We were in principal photography. And then a year later, we were at Slam Dance premiering. Wow. It was super fucking fast. Super fast. It's crazy. Well, I think, I mean, yeah. just from a writing standpoint, like that work shows, you know, that the plot is, is good. Yeah. You, you're, you're clear and concise about what the, the stakes are in the movie. And, you know, again, it just, it feels like the, the jokes support the plot. You know, you've got some good running gags in there. And, um, I mean, are, are these all the kind of things that you were trying to punch up in those rewrites? For sure. And also, also structure. Like I've, I've read a lot of his scripts that would be like, big budget action scripts and like and the shit is just tight like we we talk about the time he's the one that brought it up first he was like his one of his bars is like if you take away all the jokes out of ghostbusters ghostbusters still works yeah as yeah as a movie and that's kind of the bar that he sets and he's also been i mean obviously he's a friend and a peer but i also sort of consider him a little bit of a mentor in that sense when it comes to writing because that guy just knows a ton of that shit left right and center and if anything is a b minus joke or below we just don't let it in like that's sort of our that's sort of our last thing like we all sort of divide and conquer like if someone if neil has an idea for a script then he'll kind of go off and write it or he'll pair up with sean and then we'll come back and they'll deliver us pages and we'll kind of give notes but the very last thing that happens before we send it out to anyone into like the business to like to send it to a to a producer or anything like that is all five of us will sit down and go through it with a fine tooth comb and a machete and just be like, 
all all five of our fingerprints are on it and go, yep, that's great. That's a B plus joke or better. And then and then and only then does it leave sort of the womb of Dr. God. To be a man in that womb. (laughs) 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 One day, one day, I hope. Uh, No, my my question was going to be, what were the movies you were looking at or thinking of going into that? Ah, yes. Uh, Well, I feel like anybody that watches any of my stuff for about 10 minutes will figure out that I have a complete whore for the three Johns, and that's John McTiernan, John Carpenter, and John Frankenheimer. I do not belong to that school of thought that comedy is done in the wide shots or comedy only has to be in medium shots. Me and Bob really believe that. We're like, fuck you, man. Let's get some extreme close-ups. Let's get on this. I mean, if you listen to the score, there's a lot of Carpenter in there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have compared it favorably to you know to Shaun the Dead and all that and I would say of the modern directors like obviously you look at that trilogy it's it's crazy good it's just uh, Hot Fuzz is a movie I wish I had made first like it makes me angry (laughs) um but um so those guys but going back to those old movies like again like say something like Killer Clowns from Outer Space like once you get past you know like the the clown part of it there's a really really great part where John Vernon is being used as a as a hand puppet and it's really dark and intense and you just see him like lean forward he's like it's okay dave we just want to kill you and i'm like that shit like that is what i kind of wanted to hit and find that that middle uh that middle ground of tone of like here's comedy but also it's it's scary and it's earned and i my one of my big things too is that it had to be practical. There is very, very little sweetening, yeah. digital sweetening in that movie. We used a shit ton of blood. I was going to say that was that was something I was so happy to see because <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. when when the first when when the janitor explodes, for instance, I was, yeah. that's that's fantastic. Because anybody else that would have just been uh, CGI, I feel like. No, no, we did. That was the very last shot on the very last day, and we stuck three quarters of a stick of dynamite with some old grizzled dude that looks like he belonged in the fucking navy. <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, I mean, I got enough here." And like, we made <clears throat> we made an old fashioned like like we kind of like working with Mark Villobos, uh, our effects guy, our creature effects guy. He and I both were on the same page immediately. We we're talking about like the original Fright Night, mm-hmm. like that kind of look, like those practicals. What's the other? Uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of with the two Corys? Lost Boys. Uh, Lost Boys, yeah. Lost Boys, yeah, like all that. One of the first things that Mark said to me was like, man, I am so glad that no one fucking sparkles in this movie. And I was like, yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> Poor Twilight. Yeah, and then we got, and then we had the stunt guys. Uh, we had the same stunt crew from, uh, what's that HBO show, True Blood? True Blood yep. I would say we probably used two 55-gallon drums full of fake blood. And, and how you see... How you see that the end of the movie yeah. without doing and spoiling it, the end of the movie when you see what the office looks like, that's how we fucking left it. That's awesome. <laughs> we walked off set that way, so we kind of we kind of shot it in it roughly as in order as much as possible so that we could destroy yeah. things fully without having to worry about rebuilding anything because we that just didn't have hungry. the money to. Yeah, that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Yeah. Well, again, I think you just did a, a, a damn good job, sir, with this movie and, and really hitting the balance of the two genres and the tone of the theme. Thank you. I think, man, all that blood was, was definitely worth it. I don't know what the cleaning bill was for the place when you were all said and done. But, um, yeah, it, it is nice to see it, and it, it leaves an impact, I think. You know, Thank it's, you. Uh, it's what you want, I think, from from this kind of movie is to, to feel the blood and, and see that and get messy. Hell yeah. 
think about it. I will shove you right back on my ass. Yeah. Anyway, that brings us to the film, which is Bad Milo, again, mentioned up front. This is a 2013 movie directed by Jacob Vaughn. It's a horror comedy of sorts. It's about a man that learns his unusual stomach pains are being caused by a demon living in his intestines that comes out his butthole and kills people. And the movie was written by Benjamin Hayes, Jacob Vaughn. It stars, it's got a pretty awesome cast, Ken Marino, the great Ken Marino from the state. Julian Jacobs, Mary Kay Place. Who else is in here? Patrick Warburton? I'm always wondering if I say that Warburton. right. Warburton. Okay. Peter Stormar. Yeah, and then uh, Camille Nanjiani from Silicon Valley. He was in there. Produced by the Duplass brothers, mm-hmm. which kind of I was shocked at I was shocked at the producer because it didn't really feel like a Duplass brother. Yeah. Now, this is a movie that Craig and I had talked about actually before. I know, Craig, you've been wanting to see this for a while now. You, I think you had mentioned it to me. That was the first I had heard of it. You know, when we found out Brian was coming on, we thought, oh, man, well, let's let's see if we can find something that um, isn't kind of in the same wheelhouse a little bit as Bloodsucking Bastards, even though I think they're very, very different. You know, you weren't familiar with it, Brian, if I'm not mistaken, and not it's a, like a cool one for us Nothing. to land on. So let's get your thoughts on this. What would you mm-hmm. think? Bad Milo. Craig, you want to go first? You were excited, right? <laughs> I was excited to see it. Uh, yeah, I mean... Did um, it live up to your expectations? I, I'd say for the most part it lived up to exactly what I wanted it to be. Because I, I also love Ken Marino. I sure. feel like he can really do no wrong. The movie certainly delivered on poop jokes. The entire premise is a poop <laughs> joke, isn't it? Essentially. And then, and, then there's, and then there's a monster, you know? So there's like there's nothing not to love about it. In a way, and and, mm-hmm. and then the monster's cute. He's very. Cute. I don't know, and I love that poster, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I love like I want to frame that poster. So yeah, as far as movies that you wish you had made, this is this is kind of one I wish I had made. Oh wow! Um, I, I feel like I've just been lazy, but yeah, I mean, it, it lived up to it for me. And what about you, Brian? Um, you know. Yes, I agree with uh, Craig as well. It lived up to my expectations because I grew up on those movies of like Ghoulies and Critters and right. Nilbog and all that. Um, a little little reference for anyone gets it. You, well, the, three, the three of us get it, and I assume anyone sure. listening to this would get it. Yeah, I think some of yeah. our listeners would get that. They know Troll too. You know, Hell Comes to Frogtown yeah. and all that shit. So I definitely had all the the sweet spots for me, and I feel like it did a good job with the tone, keeping the tone consistent. My thing was that the tone was like going back before we were talking about with with like Ghostbusters. I think if you take all that stuff out of it, all the themes are really well done and tie in like from moment to moment. Even one of the very first frames you see is is getting his stomach looked at, and like all the ideas with pregnancy yeah. and fatherhood yeah. and the worries, and there's legitimately like some like good dramatic acting that you don't expect right. in these type of movies what I wasn't expecting is for it to be so fucking sad yeah it's it's, it's, it's pretty so sad. like the last half of that movie I think my I was watching it with my my wonderful girlfriend who she actually she saw the twist like two minutes before I did right. and called it oh well and I was like I was like well done yeah. boo uh, but also she pointed out she's like this movie is just kind of like sad like I I feel bad for 
for these people. And I was like, yeah, I'm not used to having this sort of feeling. Like halfway through, I don't go like, oh, that maniac cop was never held as a kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Right. But uh, from top to bottom, like, uh, would I watch it again if someone was like, oh, what's this bad movie? I was like, yeah, pop that on. I'll watch that again. It's sure. a good movie. And I agree with you as well. Like, I grew up on the state as well with Ken Marino. Like, I'm, I've been saying I want to dip my balls yeah, in it for yeah. 20 plus oh, years. Daily. So... It, it, it's been it's been very rare and few and far between that I've seen anything done by any member of the state that I didn't yeah, love. Yeah, absolutely. So I will I would I would admit my bias, well, but I, like I just wasn't prepared to be that fucking oh, sad. No, I, I, I hear you. Uh, and and I'll I'll draw a, a quick line between this and blood sucking bastards. Whereas Ken Reno can sort of he can't not be funny if he's on screen to me. Uh, I feel the same way about Joey Kearns. Mm-hmm. Like that, like there's not, there's really not a moment. I mean, great people in both casts yeah. filling them out, but those two people in particular, like if they're on screen, mm-hmm. um, um, I don't know, it, it works for me. Yeah, you know, I grew up on the state, and I've definitely been a big Reno 911 fan. I knew Ken from Eastbound and Down season four. Great job in that. Yeah. I, I gotta say though, man, something about this movie just didn't quite gel for me. Like it, just from the word go, I was not sucked into it and I think I found myself mm-hmm. wishing along the way that it just simply was, was I wish it was was funnier a little bit you know I mean it's uh, it's one of the rare times in my life I can think of where I'm like I wish a movie were wackier yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean like, I mean it's just so like the tone of it is so weird yeah, it's like, yeah. brilliant Brilliant. On one hand, he's having this like serious commitment issues and, and considerations of being a father and this awful, awful stomach pain. And just watching him yeah. squeeze out this mm-hmm. turd monster is so painful to watch and everything. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you've got like the nerdy office mate and the, who's just completely unbelievable. And Peter Stormar, like, I don't know what's going on with that dude. He's like, there's a talking parrot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well the, well, the parrot joke, the parrot joke, I am convinced. I, I, I remember watching it, and as soon as it happened, I was like, you know what? I bet that is a Peter Stormar improvisation yeah. in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he fucking forced it, and that's why there's <laughs> only one insert of the parrot that they use over and over again, because that guy was just like, I refuse, I refuse to come out of my trailer unless we could... Like, he, he did it so much that, that they had to put it in or it would fucking look weird right, if they right. cut around it. I'm convinced of that. I mean, that makes sense, I guess, but even just, like, his clothes, it was just, like, what therapist looks like this, and I don't know. There, it just... It was a very weird mix of things to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, there there's things that I liked about it and admired about it, but mm-hmm. this movie, I mean, just as a comedy, this thing worked for you, for both of you guys? Well, I'll tell you what. No, this, this was not a laugh fest for me. I'll agree with that. Like, No, it's not. It's yeah, not like, like, uh, Ken Marino's great. I, I think there were there were some weird tonal things where I don't know everything seemed fairly normal until they went to the office and said, "Hey, your new office is the bathroom," and and like and like there was like little stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, eh, "That seems a little right. too far." Like, you know, if we're gonna go that far, are we gonna kind of go a little bit further too? And like, I mean, and again, mm-hmm. there's a monster who lives in his butt, but um, 
but yeah, I, I don't know. So, so th- there was little stuff like that that didn't work for me. I can s- definitely say that. I don't know. In a weird way, I don't. I, I, I'm kind of with uh, with Brian here, where it's like it is more like I'm watching one of those old horror movies, where it's like it, it's not so much that I'm laughing at it, but like the things I'm seeing are clearly feeding my soul in some way. Your turd monster <laughs> desiring soul. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because I can't turn away. I mean, I do feel like yeah. If I was a kid, like in middle school, I would love this. Oh movie. God, yeah. Oh, if I was twelve, if I was twelve years old and this movie came out, I would show all of yeah. my friends. My biggest thing is like we talk about like I wish this movie could have been wackier. I feel like this is kind of unfortunately like when you make independent films and you can only have actors for so many times in a day. I feel like. Like when you see Ken Marino is sort of this through through line and he's the straight man. And like that seemed like him where he like leaves Jillian Jacobs, his right. wife, like they're they're crying real tears. Like it's almost like that scene is too serious to be in the movie. But then when you see him with Patrick Warburton, who is being a different kind yeah. of wacky, and then you see him with uh, Peter Starmar, who's being a different kind of wacky. Uh, and then yeah, you see him with movie. Stephen Root, who's being a different kind of wacky. All three of their performances are great. All of them by themselves, but when you put it all together, I'm like, is the fucking is the ass demon the like least wacky part of this movie? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like some of that stuff overshadowed the creature work in Milo, which is pretty good. You know, it definitely like it's got a personality and it looks appropriately disgustingly like a like what I would imagine the inside of somebody's body cavities yeah. to look like. I guess, yeah. and uh, you know, yeah, it's like I get that there's the metaphor mm-hmm. angle of it and and that's kind of tying right. into the sadder story but yeah I don't know I don't know if I was expecting it just to go on more of a rampage or what but it does seem like it's just a, it's just a hard connect yeah. for me to make between those two yeah. things mm-hmm. like this murdering butt demon and then uh, like that being the serious thing of of this story. okay yeah. <laughs> yeah but let's talk about specific things I mean one of the things I will say there was one joke that got me laughing pretty good, and it's not even really a joke, but it's right. when uh, Milo was kind of crawling back up Ken Marino's legs to get <laughs> to get back into his butthole, and, and Ken Marino was just like, yeah. nails, 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 nails. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> yeah. The hardest, the hardest I laughed was when. Uh, was he came back when he was in the uh, when he was in the bathroom, the office bathroom, and the uh, the the black the black uh, secretary comes in and says, "Hey, we got the F- FBI agents here." She's like, "Do you got poop on your shirt?" That made me laugh. <laughs> That's pretty so funny. hard. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. You got poop on you got poop on your shirt. Uh, I was like, yeah. I mean, nobody that, wants poop yeah. on their shirt. Yeah, because that believes that that makes it believable and realistic to me. I also I also say the very first the first scene where he goes into his office work, I immediately remember saying out loud, "I'm like, man, I wish I had that many fucking people in <laughs> yeah. my movie." Oh like, yeah, I no yeah, extras big... that I'm just walking back and forth behind the camera every time. They've got like 20 people in that scene. <laughs> Kill for them. You just needed to put in a turd monster into your movies, blood sucking turd monsters. <laughs> Okay, well, you guys got wrapped up into the like the sort of emotional side of the story between um, you know this this couple, Kim Reno and his wife. Um, like, what specifically in that storyline kind of worked for you? Or just- Honestly, like like all of it, but especially right around the time 
I'll, I'll say for sure where it started to really affect me is that that, that scene where like they're crying real tears and have break. She's yeah. like, no, you don't, don't leave me. Why? Please, please don't walk out right now. I just told you I'm pregnant. Why are you being like this to me? And I get, he can't explain, Hey, I've got an ass monster. <laughs> uh, but he's at the door and he's like, I'm just going to go. And it's, it's better for both of us. And then like him in the hotel room, like curling up with him and then watching TV and like listening to her, the message and her, like, just call me. We can talk about this. I was like, this, this is, a, I don't know how you're going to get the comedy back because I've kind of forgotten about the ass monster right now. And all I'm seeing is a single dad with his kid whose mom they can't be with because she's got like a drinking problem. I'm like, is this where the Duplass brothers came in? Is this what's sure, happening? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Dad. I was I was surprised. Like I didn't know where they were gonna go with this with this butt monster. I mean, like how you wrap that storyline up, and it it, yeah, it did make sense. I mean, from a plot standpoint, what they worked out, and you know, with the dad and and everything like that. I was convinced mm-hmm. that they were just gonna have to kill him. Like it was just gonna be like a yeah, oh you yeah. kill him and then everything's great. And just the fact that yeah, they found more to do with it. Than that. Yeah, well, they got around that by doing the old twin magic. Like if if I if I cut off your arm, it hurts me, kind of thing. Yeah. But they set up the they set up the sequel pretty well with you know with the ending. Can you talk a little bit about like have you know having directed a couple of movies now and mm-hmm. actors in, in different genres and stuff? Um, like how would you approach this? I mean, I kept thinking about you know how they they tell Ken Marino to okay, just you need to basically <laughs> act like you're you're giving birth out of. You, you you took us back there and um, to something disgusting and really like to have the worst possible turd uh, fest of your life right now. Just pretend you're doing that and try not to laugh and uh, fall down on the floor. I mean, how do you, how do you even like wrap your head around? what you do with an actor for that kind of scene. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, to me, I always always go back to, uh, <clears throat> and this is somewhere of like my, I, I, I do this all the time. I, 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 I teach improv comedy sure. three times a week. <laughs> this is what I do. It's uh, to me. I look, I liken it to, uh, cause I, I study something called position play that my mentor, Miles Stroff, who founded the pack theater, which is where I teach at. Uh, he said basically the idea that's, it's not comedy math, it's comedy truth. He came up with the idea of position play, which is there's basically about four comedic scene types in the history of the world, and you're about you're probably going to find yourself in them 99.99% of the time. That's straight absurd, character-driven, alternate reality, and realistic. The whole movie is alternate reality. If this is true, what else is true? Mapping and consistency. But inside of that, um, alternate reality scenes are the trickiest because you can do it can disguise itself because you can do different scene types inside of it. So I would look at something like the pooping thing as like a character-driven scene where the only things you have to really do there <laughs> is a you have to mirror and you heighten. And the best example of that I could give you is from Dumb and Dumber, and that's sure. Jeff Daniels. That guy, I'm like, you look at that guy on the newsroom, you know, and then you look at that guy. Dumb and Dumber, it's the same actor, and the only difference between him and you is that guy is willing to commit to it and fucking go for it. Uh, Yeah, like, it is impossible for anyone to watch that scene from any any nation, any culture, any race, (laughs) and to just watch Jeff Daniels have an explosive (laughs) bowel movement. We can't even talk about it without laughing. It's the universal language. So that's that would be my I'd be like, I'd be like, just give me your version of that, right? Which I think Kim Marino did a great job. Where like he looks like he's physically in pain, and that first time when he hits the when he hits the ground uh, face first and passes out, and you just see the little 
across the and it comes back to him the next day and like he lifts his head up off the tile and he's got drool there I believe it I absolutely believe it he yeah. sold it on me. But sure. if he was kind of like half-assing it or like winking at the camera or being too cool for school, Sean Penn could have never pulled that off. <laughs> Sean Penn would never allow himself to be that dumb and right. that right. big. Penn don't poop. Right? I, I, I know. I, I guess – well, then, then again, he may – because I'm sure Sean Penn um, listens to this podcast. No, you, may be very, you may be very soon be getting a Dropbox account that has a little uh, a deleted scene from I Am Sam. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> or that, where Sean Penn just fucking yeah. shits his diaper and goes for it. Do you think I haven't done that scene before? I was doing diarrhea before you were born. <laughs> so you're telling me that during the, the Ken Marino, Peter Stormare scene, where he's uh, Stromer suddenly remembers something. He goes over, he picks up an old, dusty, leather-bound book and lays it out on the desk. And there's an old, like, wood-carving, uh, 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 you know, uh, print of, of some spirit coming out of someone's butt. That didn't make you laugh a little bit? It looks like oh, a Chinese well, dragon. No, I mean, it didn't really. Like, it just, I don't know. It felt like you're suddenly, like, imposing some sort of, like, gremlins mythology or something on this or... Army of Darkness or, or something oh. or Evil Dead like no it didn't make me laugh it was just like this is ridiculous why would he have this book I don't believe it for a second and uh, right. I, what does that mythology yeah. mean I, 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 I agree with that it just it took me yeah. out like that whole scene like I was just waiting for that parrot to maybe go over there and That's take a big old dump on that book I'd just like to give a shout out to the Coen brothers because give them even more credit considering that that guy never said a word in Fargo. Right, yeah. Like, that's how good, like, how good of the directors must they have been to be able to sit on that guy. Like, watch Bad Milo, watch Constantine, and then watch that movie and be like, there's no way. No way. No, I mean, and he was a, you know, he was in Lebowski, he was a nihilist, which was, oh, yeah. Know, certainly. That's a- them. Yeah, that's let, that's them letting him off the leash a little bit, like him begging them. He, he was there on the set when uh, you know when Jesus Quintana's scenes were being shot. He's like, look at him, look what you're giving John Turturro. Let me do that. <laughs> well, let's talk about. I mean, I do like Stephen Root, like you know, in everything he's been in, and also Coen Brothers player as well. Just so different in everything. He's a fucking chameleon. It's so good. He's a fucking chameleon. I, I've loved him for years and years and years. Right. You like you think of him like yeah you talk about office space but then you talk about the work he did on Boardwalk Empire, you talk about the work like one of the first like I love the shitty like late eighties early nineties action movies that take themselves too seriously, and one of the one of the first things because I have all my I still have my VHS collection with the girlfriend is like oh god must you I'm like yes <laughs> so yeah when we were first dating one of the first things I did to sort of like open her up into like, hey, this is the world of Brian O'Connell. I made her watch the 1993 classic Extreme Justice with uh, Lou Diamond oh, yeah. Phillips and Yafet Koto and Scott Glenn. You could tell that uh, you could tell that uh, Pearl Jam had just come out and become very big because in every scene, Lou Diamond Phillips is dressed like Eddie Vedder, but in a different way. <laughs> but Steven Root plays the newspaper editor in that 
movie and he's in like three scenes and he's in no scenes with anybody except the female love interest who you've never seen again <laughs> so that means like he, like even going back to that I'm like fuck even St- Stephen Root is in oh, yeah. everything yeah. and he's so good and no matter what he it's does great. he's yeah, incredible really and like you could probably name five other movies been in we'd all be like oh shit right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love him where was he in Bloodsucking Bastards uh, he was he, he was one of the blood splatters <laughs> the guy's range <laughs> is incredible Who's the guy that um, who played the uh, the fertility doctor? Oh, that's Steve Zizis. He's on that. De that's who that is. Togetherness. Yeah, that that guy's in everything too, and I'm always a big fan of his. There at the end. Okay, so we we, we had the little flash forward thing at the beginning, and then we jumped back 123 yeah, yeah. hours earlier, which that was one thing that kind of stuck in my yeah. craw a little bit. So you get to the end, and and it's, it's so it's the whole dinner party. You didn't know there was a dinner party at the beginning. Now there's a dinner party. So so poop monster <laughs> trying to get in. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I guess my, my thing is, yeah, so there's a little thing that's trying to get into the house. No one in that house has ever seen before mm-hmm. or has any concept of what it is except for his mom. Mm-hmm. And so the, the entire dinner party goes out back and stands in the yard while, like, there's a monster trying to break into that. I just kind of felt like, you guys could make use of yourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I just... That, that, was one, yeah. that was one thing that I, I sort of... I became very distracted by... During the climax of yeah, the movie. Yeah, considering that the angle that they keep showing that's supposed to be from their point of view, they can't see the front door. As far as they know, it's just right. uh, an armed sure. robber or a rapist trying to get like that. None of them are calling right. 911. Like no, they're all going to die. Why don't you overpower whoever it is and everything will be fine? I, I, yeah. Craig. Uh, Craig, Mo, Money, Mo, mm-hmm. Problems, Morehead. Did it bother you? It, it bothered me a little bit at the end. Did it bother you that it wasn't a shot for shot? remake of that of the film like obviously you have the extra footage to reveal that the mother is there as well and that but there were certain shots that weren't the exact same as they had done before and that so that sort of yes. a, that, that yeah. annoyed me no yes. I, I, absolutely um, it's not cute it's not cute like the way how they did it in Pulp Fiction where I was like right. oh that's different oh, things right. and it's supposed to be a little Rashomon I'm like yeah uh, you have the you have the same footage well, just well, use yeah. the same and, footage and, uh, not, to, not to continue tooting your horn but uh, probably the biggest laugh for me in Bloodsucking Bastards was the reveal that uh, mm-hmm. Frank was right beside Joey. What is it? I mean, oh, yeah. that, that shit worked so well. Yeah, it's a great sequence. But, Thank but, you. you know, I, am, <clears throat> I am very proud of that, and it's every time we screened it, that has always worked, the, yeah. uh, the little yeah. the montage. But, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it is... And, and, it's, and it's so dumb and simple. It's just a it's just a right. pan to the left. But I was just thinking yeah. about how you know that yeah. that clearly t- took planning. <laughs> you, you were thinking about how it was going to work ahead of time, mm-hmm. I, and that's that's kind of why the the um, the flash forward at the beginning of this kind of stuck in my craw, as I was saying before, because I felt like mm-hmm. it it wasn't planned that way. It felt like it just right, wasn't right. planned to be that way. Because because there's, mm-hmm. there's not there's not a payoff that the mom is there. It's just sort of like what? It's, it was sort of confusing in a way. Right. Well, it set the tone of the movie as in like it definitely set me up to expect something that was a little more on the horror side I think sure. just you know he looks like he's definitely running away from something that's going to kill him and you I know? think that's why they did it yeah yeah I was expecting a little bit more somewhere between like Gremlins and Reanimator like where it's, I was going to be like a whoa which I didn't have a, a lot of those but that's fine the ones that we did have I thought were mm-hmm. legitimate I thought they were legitimate like oh yeah. shit moments yeah. you know I mean it's been interesting you bring up Gremlins just how much the eyes of Milo at the very least yeah. kind of resemble 
Yeah. Uh, the, the Mogwai. Oh, I, yo, I said that out loud at one point. At one point earlier, I was like, Mogwai. Well, I think the creature design of Milo is just like was perfectly mm-hmm. spot on. Yeah, it's like someone like what are those? What are those little like collectible dolls that have the big heads that you, that they make of like, everything? Oh, the Funko thing. Yeah, Funko. It's, yeah. it's like someone yeah. took the baby from dinosaurs, made a Funko out of it, and then blew yeah. it up, blew it up yeah. two feet, and then like <laughs> and gave it wrinkles like your intestines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, covered in like weird anal seepage. That's exactly what I'm and, and there is, I will say, there is a sense to me here that Bad Milo was never really going to just go off the rails. Yeah, definitely not. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, no, like, no. You know, it was, yeah. was going yeah. to stick to this thing. Like, it wasn't going to get really crazy past, you know, however crazy it got. Like, it wasn't, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, Jillian's not dying. Yeah. Like, the wife sure, is sure, not sure. dying. I, I, you, I think you feel that all the way through. Although, that would have been... What a great, like, fucking left turn, like, 180, like, right, like, 20 minutes left in the movie, Milo just comes in and he just rips her yeah. fucking throat out, yeah. and they're just like, like, yeah. whoa! Like, what is the lesson of this movie? Like, you will be controlled by your stress, and, like, that will be the king of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will be like your father. I mean, I will say, like, there was Ugh. a moment where I was genuinely kind of concerned that they were going to go the direction of having Milo, you know, cut cut her stomach open mm-hmm. or something when he found out that she's pregnant. Um, I was like, Jesus. Or, or, or they'll raise Milo as their baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think Craig and his wife yeah. could pull that off. Right? Well, we, we've been down that road, yeah. so... Uh, I, th- I thought I was being dark and bringing it up. I was like, "Oh, don't bring that up." And then Craig comes right back with the oh, yeah. with the left cross. I'm like, oh, "Okay, okay." Yeah, Craig just dropped our subscription oh, yeah. numbers from ten people to two. So thanks, dude. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap this up. You know, I think this is a very specific movie. Obviously, if it sounds like something you're interested in, you probably should check it out. It sounds like we're maybe mixed on this a little bit. I don't know that I would say. It's a big recommendation for me. I mean, I think pieces wow. of it are interesting. Again, totally, it just didn't quite, just didn't quite click for me, and was hoping for more comedy. Um, but uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. It's it's there if you want to check it out. Uh, what about you guys? What do you think? I, I would re- I would recommend it. I think it's really well done for what it is, and it gives me those nice warm fuzzies from back in the day, wa- growing up watching those type of movies. Craig, yeah. uh, I, I definitely recommend it to the right person. Sure. Great, great way to put it. I would love to have have a behind the scenes of the um, Foley work. I'm I'm hoping that wasn't just library sounds for every time. (laughs) No, they recorded those definitely on set. Yes, he. It was very real method acting. Yeah, you know, I saw that. But and I'll also say, it's always nice to have to see a practical puppet. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, Brian, man, thanks so much for coming on. But you got to tell us what you're getting into next. What's uh, what's in the pipeline? Uh, well, I'm still just doing stuff with uh, with Doctor God, DoctorGodComedy.com. Um, oh, you're coming to North Carolina, aren't you? That is correct. Yeah, it's uh, for for many many years. I would come to the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival at the DSI Comedy Theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I've been off the last year or two, just just making movies and doing that stuff but uh zach ward who runs that place and is a dear good friend of mine uh has brought me back to do some more comedy um we got some tv shows and maybe a couple different movies having up uh by the time this comes out it won't be a big deal but uh 
in the last in the last six months, Doctor God has uh, sold and lost a pilot, and sold and lost an animated pi- animated pilot. Uh-huh. So we're we're oh that's fine. That just means we're getting real close. Yes, There's just I, I can sympathize <laughs> in your rejection. Uh, I, I know you guys do. <laughs> very, um, very but the next familiar. thing I'm going to do. Uh, like I said, I'm, um, I'm teaching over at the Pack Theater in Los Angeles. I, I produce a bunch of the shows. I book about half the, the shows on the schedule. I have a lo- I have a lot of help. I'm not doing it by myself. We have a lot of really young, hungry, talented kids who are going for it. And the people I work with, like Miles Stroth and Emily Candini, Eric Moneypenny, Sam Brown, Bill Posley, Matt Lieberman, Heather Ann Campbell. Like I, I'm very, very lucky, grateful to be working with those guys. And the next thing I'm working on. Uh, I've been working on this script idea for 11 years, and I finally cracked the nut. I'm going to do the first draft this uh, this next two months. It's a Dr. God feature, which is an, an action comedy set in 1987 and is sort of a an homage and love love tone poem to all those lethal weapons and diehards and stuff that we grew up on. So, awesome. Yeah, I'm looking very oh, forward to that. Wait. Can't wait. Awesome. Well, it's awesome stuff, and and again, great job on on everything that's happened and and where you're at right now. It seems like you're in a really good place and coming off a, a good flick. Thank you, and Thank you, uh, sir. we really appreciate you coming on, and we'll look forward to seeing it all. Thank you, brothers. I yeah, really man. appreciate it. Too long, man. Too long. Yeah, it's been too long. That's for sure. As always, you can find everything we got over there at NeverHeardPodcast.com. Check out Bad Milo on Netflix. Check out our social links. Come say hello. Craig, I, you, you got to have some wisdom for us on the way out this week, right? Uh, the only person you can ever truly love yeah, is yourself. Mm. Mm. I can, I'll work on these, these aphorisms. I, I have, well, yeah. Maybe we should just say bye. Thanks again okay. for, <laughs> for everything, Brian. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye.